Um, Annie's going to come and speak to us in a moment. So if you want to find a Bible uh, or some way of finding Mark chapter 8, and I'll read that for us. Uh, So Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, Mark chapter 8 from verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And the to you. Great, it's lovely to be with you. Shall we pray? Father, many of us have had pretty busy days, pretty hectic days getting here. But Lord, we trust that you're here. We trust that you want to speak to us by your Spirit. So Lord, even in the midst of our tiredness, please just give us really soft and receptive hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a really significant weekend for you guys. You might have noticed it's a fairly significant weekend for the country. Now, I'm not particularly concerned whether you would be an arch-monarchist or you're a fervent Republican. That's not my, uh, my concern particularly. But one of the things that has interested me is just how different the country is since 1953. Now, I'm about to ask a rude question. Does anybody remember the coronation in 1953? Is there anybody willing to admit that? I, I don't, just to reassure you. Okay, there's nobody here. What I gather, though, as you look at the difference since 1953, is tomorrow we'll reveal we're a slightly more equal society. So apparently in 1953, you had lots of sort of lords and dukes waving their coronets around. I think they're small crowns, aren't they? But, you know, had all of that going on, and that won't be happening tomorrow. We're a more equal society since uh, 1953. We're clearly a more secular society. As you think about the numbers of people attending church in this country, that has shrunk significantly as a percentage over the last... 70 years. The number of people identifying as Christians has shrunk during that time. And we think the other kind of changes, obviously we're a more technological society since then, and we're undoubtedly a more sexualised society since 1953. Think about the different sexual ethics that have changed over the last uh, two or three generations. It's a very different world. 
And that means this isn't a bad weekend to focus on this question. What sort of church does the 21st century need? Given that we're living in this culture more equal, more secular, more sexualized, more technologically advanced, what sort of church does the 21st century need in the five places that are represented here? How do we witness in the 21st century? How do we persevere? How do we bless our communities? How do we shine in our place of work? What sort of church is needed for the 21st century? And here's my really, really radical conclusion. Probably the same sort of churches that the first century needed. Because if you think about it, if you think about the time when Jesus was around and the early church grew and developed, it actually wasn't that different from the 21st century. Okay, slightly fewer iPhones around. But in other ways, very similar. So if you ask people in ancient society, do you want to worship one God? The answer is pretty much no. If you say to people in the first century, are you really clear about the best way to use your sexuality? The answer is pretty much no. Actually, in many ways, the 21st century is not that dissimilar from the period of time when the church first grew. But I hope that vaguely excites you, actually, and gives you a sense of, well, maybe there are opportunities, and maybe there's stuff we can learn this weekend about what the church did in the first century and how it impacted it then. Maybe in a way that we can do today. Because if you think back to that early church, they recognised they needed to look pretty different. They didn't fit in very easily to society. They needed to stand out and they needed to be courageous. Which I guess was in the mind of those who gave me the title Courageous Communities. I don't think it was just that they liked alliteration like the letter C. That There probably was something deeper going on. How can we be courageous church communities in the places where God has put us? How can we shine as lights? How can we impact the 21st century? There's only one problem I had. I don't, know, I don't know what the word courageous does for you. For me, courageous is kind of, you know, the kind of guy who announces he's going to run about six marathons in the next week. You know, courageous feels like one of those sort of alpha male words, you know, I'm going to be going to be really courageous. And to be honest, you've got the least alpha male speaker going. So that sort of didn't really work massively for me. But what I want to say is this. I want us to have the courage to be like Jesus. Okay, I'm going to slightly redefine my title if I can. I want to call us this weekend to be courageous, Christ-like communities. I don't think it's just because, hey, I get another C in. It's actually, I want us to shine in our communities by being more and more like Jesus. John Stott was a, a great 20th century church leader, wrote books, uh, led a big church in, uh, in London, ended up speaking at conferences around the world. But I've always been struck by his answer to a question. He was in his 80s, and he said this. I'm sometimes asked whether at my age I have any ambitions left. I always reply, yes, my overriding ambition is that I may become a little more like Christ. 
Why do you find that quite striking? I wonder as you think about life and think about what you want, whether there's something in your heart that is kind of echoing that. Hey, what it must be like in my character, in the way I treat people, to be a little bit more like the one I'm following, to be a little bit more like Jesus. Can you imagine a church where everybody's highest priority is to treat one another like Jesus would? Or to have that sort of ambition? Or could you imagine the impact on our communities and our neighbourhoods if we're growing more and more like Jesus? Or, let's be honest, can you imagine the satisfaction that would give ourselves? See, if we're Christians, Jesus is living within us. His Spirit's within us. And my hope is actually something is going on within you as I'm speaking, saying, yeah, that's what I want. I really want to be a little bit more like Jesus. And so what we're going to do this weekend is look at four passages in the New Testament which specifically call us to be like Jesus. So in each session, we're going to see something of Jesus and the passage is going to deliberately tell us the goal is for us to be more like him. Now, to be sure, Jesus is more than our example. You know, if we're here and we're still getting to grips with Christianity, please hear this. that Christianity isn't try your best to be a bit like Jesus because, to be honest, we'll fall short. <coughs> Jesus is the one who saves us. He rescues us. He dies for the fact that we can't be like him left to ourselves. But the Bible is clear that once we've become Christians, and once Jesus has come to live within us, we should be, and God will work in us such that we will be, more and more like Jesus. There you go. That's my aim for the weekend. My aim for the weekend is that as we go back into our different places, it will be with, I want to be more like Jesus this week. And we want to have an impact on our communities as we live a little bit more like Jesus. And our first passage is the one that was read to us from Mark chapter 8. Now, I need to apologise. I've spoken at church weekends before, and I know the drill. Friday night is just easing in and relaxing and nothing too serious and nothing too intense because you all had long journeys and you're all tired. Nothing too intense. And we've got Mark 8. Can I say, I'm just going to blame Jesus. Because actually Jesus' first talk on how to be a disciple sadly isn't sort of overly relaxed. So if you think this is all a bit too intense, blame him. Because it's quite striking, isn't it? To know what you would do if you had a crowd in front of you. You imagine you've got a crowd of people and they're not Christians and you get the chance to talk to them. I would do something like this. Hey, become a Christian. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. You get forgiveness and you get a purpose in life and you get a whole church family to belong to and you get heaven in the end. Become a Christian and it's fantastic. And Jesus has got a crowd in front of him. And he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Have you ever thought Jesus has got a bit of a PR problem? It's not the most obvious start, is it? But of course, what Jesus is doing 
is calling people to make the decision that he himself has made. Just before that, you get, if you like, the high point of Jesus' career. He's healed the sick, he's calmed the storm, even raised the dead. And finally, the disciples, Peter has recognized, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. High point of Jesus' career. And people have got a, a script for what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to kick out the Romans and he's going to be brain as king and it's going to be awesome. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, that he must be killed and three days light to rise again. And Peter's just appalled by this. Now I guess if we've kicked around churches for a while, we're kind of used to it. So we don't kind of get the shock of it. Just the sheer shock of the fact that the roads that Jesus, the living God, come down to earth is going to take is a road towards utter humiliation and death. We're not actually going to look at Philippians chapter 2 this weekend. We could have done it. another passage where in the end we're called to be like Jesus. But, but in Philippians chapter 2, you have Jesus pursuing what I'd call a kind of double humbling. So the first decision is he doesn't consider equality with God, hanging around in heaven with his father. He doesn't consider that something to be clinged on to, but he makes himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The God through whom the world is made becomes a fragile embryo. It's the most astonishing decision of humility. And then... Having humbled himself once by becoming a baby, he makes the decision to humble himself yet again. To make the decision to face the worst a human being could face, the utter degradation and pain and humiliation of death on a cross, the worst death imaginable. By the way, have you ever realised, how on earth do we make Christianity conventional when it is that radical? The decisions that Jesus makes are just astonishing, aren't they? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be put to death. And then Jesus says, come and follow me. Come and walk that sort of road. Come and follow me. That's what Jesus says. That's his invitation to become a Christian. His invitation to become a Christian isn't basically have the same sort of life with a little bit of spiritual satisfaction thrown in. No, the call to be a Christian goes something like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. If we're going to have an impact on our communities. It will be because we're different in the end. You know, nobody in the end is going to say, yeah, I really want to be a Christian because, hey, you're just like me. You just live the same kind of way as me. You're not appealing that. And it's just shocking, isn't it? I was thinking, actually, Again, partly because the, the role I have speaking to issues around sexuality. I was thinking, could there be a more shocking command to our present culture than this? You must deny yourself. Because it seems to me primarily the way that our culture works is this. 
Our responsibility is to live out our deepest desires. The things that we see within us, we want to express those, we want to be ourselves. And Jesus' very first call to people who want to follow him is, you must deny yourself. It's just the complete opposite, isn't it? But to be a Christian will involve denying certain things that feel very important to us. It's just what it is to be a Christian. You know, occasionally people say to me, look, Andy, how can you, how can you say if somebody's going to become a Christian, it's going to have to change the way they use their sexuality? Or in other contexts, if somebody becomes a Christian, it's going to have to change their ambitions. Or if, if somebody becomes a Christian, it's going to end up changing the way they relate to their family. How can you say that sort of thing? And I know it's hard, but my simple response is, it's kind of what Jesus says. If anyone wants to become my disciple, they must deny themselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Christian. He ended up being executed by the Nazis because he wouldn't bow to Hitler. And he put it like this. When Christ calls a man, slightly dated language, but when Christ calls a man or woman, he bids them come and die. To be a Christian is a kind of death to all the things we would naturally live for, death to the things we used to live for. And to be courageous will to be to walk that road. And again, we can't complain. Jesus, it's outrageous you're calling us to do that. Oh, you're on the way to the cross as you do it. In other words, Jesus is simply calling us to follow in the path that he's set. And that will mean, as we look at the road that Jesus takes towards the cross, in one level that's unique. Yeah, mercifully, we're not called to die for other people's sin. You've not got to be the saviour of the world. And yet, as you see Jesus taking the road downwards, taking the road away from a great reputation, there's a sense of that's what we're called into. Think of that moment where Jesus is in Gethsemane and he knows the cross is ahead of him. Drop, sweat dropping, drops of blood. And he's just aware of the cost. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet yeah, not what I will, but your will be done. Yeah, at one level, that's a unique moment of history. And yet, yet Jesus also takes Peter and James and John with him and tells them to pray so they won't fall into temptation. I think almost certainly he's saying, watch. Watch, because this is the road you're going to take as well. Watch what it's like. Watch how I handle it. Some of you know what I mean. Some of you are in the midst, actually, of the moment of times where actually it just feels really hard to be a Christian. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. You're just aware of the cost of that. The rest of your family just really don't understand the decisions you're making. You know, some of us are single. And actually the reason we're single is because we said no to a relationship that isn't aligned with God's will and we know some of the cost of that. 
Well, actually, some of us are persevering in marriage. That's not easy. Or some of us were just conscious of the cost, time, money of investing in people, walking towards their pain. And actually, you've got here, and if you're honest, you're pretty tired of being a Christian. And that's what it is to be involved in a courageous community. It might be this is just a reminder, even on the first night, that to say, gosh, Lord, it's hard. And in some ways, I want you to take the pain of this away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Because that's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to be part of a courageous community. And it might just be a call for some of us that, that actually if this isn't really ringing any bells, if to be honest my image of a Christianity doesn't really involve a cross, maybe right at the start of the weekend you just want to be praying, Lord, make me more like you, even if that's costly. Make me more like you. Because it is the only way to live. It is the only way to live. Let me encourage you, because this has been about the heaviest talk I've ever given on the first night of a church weekend. <laughs> whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You do know the way to miss out. I mean, I know, again, for most people, missing out on anything is just the worst nightmare that can happen in life. Do you want to know how to miss out on life? Just be really comfortable. Just try and get the most ease and the most comfort and the most satisfaction. and Just never do anything costly. Boy, if you do that, you'll miss out. Because actually, if we try and hold on to our lives, Jesus says, that's a really good way to lose it. Whereas the way to find true life, true life as it's meant to be, True life where we know Jesus in a deeper way. True life where we're living for the most wonderful, glorious satisfaction that's going to last forever. The way to do that, and the way to get that, Jesus says, is to throw your life away. Throw your life away for him and for others. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I remember having a, a conversation with a, a Christian who'd suffered a huge amount and made real sacrifice actually because of their lifestyle living for Jesus. I asked him, you know, has it been painful? And they said, yes. Has it been worth it? Yes. Because actually what Jesus says is true. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's the way to find a life that isn't wasted. It's the way to find Jesus in a deeper way. It's the way to have the satisfaction of walking his road. Is there a cost? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Because actually then we get to have the privilege of being like him. Now it is Friday night. Friday night probably isn't the night to say, I'm going to make a really big decision that will now apply for the rest of my life on a Friday evening, but, but just my aim tonight is just to get that in our heads as we go through the weekend, to have in our heads the ambition, I'd love to be more like Jesus as I go home, and to have in our minds that that probably isn't going to be one big decision that is costly, but just 
within the normal daily life as we make decisions. I'm going to keep denying myself. I'm finding through life as I do it. I'm going to keep making sacrifices. And as I do that, pray, not my will, but yours be done. And I'm going to keep walking the road of Jesus. One of my heroes who's going to pop up every so often this weekend is a man called Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary to China. Went through huge costs. Often in China, suffered great loneliness, suffered numerous family bereavements. And as he gave his life away, boy, did others gain it. Thousands upon thousands of people in China becoming Christians. Initially, in a sense, through that decision, I'm going to pay a cost. And he made this comment. Is anything of value in Christ's service that costs little? Is anything of value in Christ's service that costs little? Courageous communities, courageous Christ-like communities, will be willing to pay a cost. Because that's the way to gain life. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me. The world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray.